Hey there, Alex Lokes here, and just to let you know, we are Classic Camera Revival, and we are staying alive. That's right, get your polyester suits on. This is our final episode for our fourth season, and we are going back to the 70s. That's right. Let's roll. Coming to you live from Toronto, Canada, this is the Classic Camera Revival. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you certainly will after listening to our show. So, the 1970s were a weird period for Minolta and for Leica, in the sense that they joined forces. That's right, a solid Japanese producer and a legendary German producer joined forces to start producing... I would call them cousin cameras, as in they had copal shutters, they shared sort of lens formulations at the same time, and they produced relatively close to the same camera in all but lens mounts and branding. So the first one of those on the German side was the Leica R3, and on the Japanese side was a camera that I have has rekindled my love of Minolta, and that is the XE7. On the German side, it was called the Leica R3, and as I mentioned before, it's the Leica XE7. This is a beautiful camera. It reminds me a lot of my, um, my first SLR, the SRT-102. It's big, it's bulky, and at 40 yards, you'll probably be able to tell the difference between it and an R3, but only if you know what you're looking for. Um, this is a camera that I brought along on my uh, vacation to Disney World. Um, it's great as a full manual camera. It is even better as an aperture priority. And unlike the R3, you don't have to do any sort of weird yoga postures to stop down those two cam lenses to get it to actually meter properly. Um, because it uses a standard Minolta mount, which means you can use your MC and your MD lenses on it. Um, the viewfinder is big, it's bright, it has almost a match needle system in it where you sort of set your shutter speed to where the needle falls on the um on the scale there is however a few things that i not 100 percent a fan of one of them is the present the um, placement of the film counter window it's on the back so i have to sort of tilt the camera down towards me instead of just a quick look at the back while it's hanging around my neck. Um, the um, overpresence of all the locking buttons, there's like three right on the front, one to sort of take it off of the automatic mode, um, one for the um, film speed exposure setting, exposure index um, thing, and the uh, exposure um, compensation. Um, like all Minolta's, it has the beautiful CLC system, which is sort of Minolta, very early version of almost a matrix metering system. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the one thing that I really dislike about it is that it was produced for such a short time. Only three years. Only three years. As, uh, 
Bill said, um, which means that they are rare. I thankfully came across mine um, through my workplace here in college. It had they had um, the body sitting there, but they didn't have any lenses for it, so it was use- useless to the um, applied photography program. So I've supplied film, I've supplied them contacts um, to uh, get film. So they basically said, "Hey, <laughs> oh, we don't want it." And it is in. It is pretty much like new. That's what I was going to comment. Like I have an XE7 just like yours, but mine has a lot more patina to it. Yeah, yours looks like it came through a time machine. <laughs> you bastard! Yeah, well. Um, so yeah, that's the XE7. But again, it was released a year before Leica produced the R3. And it lasted for three years, and it was replaced by um, the next camera, which the Leica cousin is the R4. And uh, Bill has a far lighter and a much more streamlined version, and that's called the XD11. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I, too, also own an XD7, and I'm a big fan of that camera. Yes, it's hefty. Yes, the film counter window is in a weird spot. And, but otherwise, that, that shutter sound, oh, boy, is it delicious sounding. So by the late 70s, uh, Minolta decided to take a great leap forward. Uh, and it probably sort of in some cases a response to other camera companies. Like Olympus had the OM2N, which was an aperture priority uh, and manual focus, uh, manual uh, SLR, which is probably one of the most compact out there. You had Canon out there with their shutter priority. And then later, I think, came out with the AE, the A1, which was their shutter priority aperture priority and a few other things thrown in but it had some rather odd late 70s ergonomics like i think the early battlestar first generation battlestar galactica like uh metering the xd by your command yes um but the xd11 the xd11 to me was like probably one of the more i consider it minolta's pinnacle I think the pinnacle of their camera development, you know, it was made of metal alloy chassis, at metal, you know, metal top, metal bottom. You had both aperture and shutter priority, so you can have both flavors, not just like some other companies where they chose just math, <clears throat> Canon, or Art, uh, Nikon, Olympus, Pentax, and just about everybody else. Minolta threw it all together, and they also came out with a new lens series, which is the MD mount. Now, a little asterisk, you can use MC lenses, MC mount lenses on the XD11. The only thing is, don't move that little knob over to shutter because it won't work for you. If you, as long as you keep it on aperture manual, you're fine. So, yes, you can use your older MC lenses on an XD body, but again, yeah, you won't get the shutter priority. It, in terms of size, it's pretty compact. In fact, I, you know, it, it's sort of I. If you eyeball it, it's it's the same size as an Icon FE two or an FM two, and also uh, comes with a vertical. Uh, I think it's a Seiko Copal shutter. It's super quiet. Uh, it takes two S seventy six or Energizer three five seven batteries, unlike the A one, which you need that weird six volt puppy that the AE1 has and the new F1s have, but that's, like I said, subject for yet another podcast. It is like the perfect late 70s camera, and the uh, the big kicker is you can probably find a decent one for a tick over 100 bucks. 
Just the body. Yeah. Absolutely. Lenses, of course, sold separately. And again, some some repair techs don't like touching them because it is an electronic body. Gary's camera in uh, Illinois, uh, he oh, he's not afraid to touch them, and he does great work on them. And it's worth the drive to Chicago. Well, this uh, to give you an idea in terms of pricing, I think out the door, return shipping back to my home in lovely Oakville, Ontario, Canada, I think I paid about 80 90 bucks Canadian. Everything in. And it, it, they, they, he did a great job with it. Um, now, uh, the XD11, in terms of uh, production, they made them from 1978 to roughly about... Early night, I'd say around 83, 84, and then it was replaced by the X700, the X570, and the X370 if we're in North America. Knock it down to an even number if you're in Europe for the 500 and the 300. And in Japan, I can't remember what they did for Asia. So, yeah, it's sort of like by the 80s, they kind of took the sort of we got to hit a price point instead of like building a superior camera platform for the advanced amateur. Now, um, the one thing that I did not mention with the XE7 was the fact that it does not have the uh, contacts for a, a motor drive. Can you put on a um, Minolta motor drive onto the XT11? Yes, you can. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm just looking it up here on KEH, and you can, they have one here for about 80 bucks. There you go. And it's available, and I have one. Actually, I have a black... A black one, uh, the XD11, which is the North American market. In Europe, they're known as the XD7. Uh, in Japan, they're just known as the XD. I have a, a silver XD model at home. Nice. Uh, it, it's a, it, they're beautiful cameras. Yeah. I shot a lot with them this past summer. Yeah. Um, continuing on, um, sticking in uh, Japan, we have James with a beautiful... Probably one of the last of the fixed lens rangefinders out there, and again, not a stranger to the podcast, it is the Olympus 35 SP. Thanks, Alex. And you know, I'm going to start off by saying this is going to be hard for me because I am a Nikon fanboy and a Leica man and a Rolly man and pretty much everything but an Olympus man. Really? We yeah. won't judge. But we have but. to fix that. The the, the OM ones are it's such a beautiful system. Yeah, they are, and uh, and and it's just because I've spent all my money on those other systems that I am not an Olympus man. But um, there you go. Yeah. So there's nothing against Olympus. Yet. It's just I've <laughs> yet famous shut last up, words. Shut up. Shut up. Is that you? Did I say that, or was that? Did John say that? I don't. I, I can't tell if it was my inner voice or. I you. think that was Mike. <laughs> Mike. Yeah, we're gonna pour one out for Mike. Mike, gonna pour out a kombucha for you. Um, it's all vegan. Don't worry. Uh, anyway, the 35 SP um, is uh, yeah. I had to pour the kombucha out because nobody else wanted to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the uh, Olympus 35 SP is I guess part of the whole Olympus sort of trip 35 uh, family of cameras. So. Cameras manufactured from the 60s well into the 70s. The 35SP, I think, was manufactured from 69 through 76. Uh, What kind of sets the 35SP apart from the other 35 rangefinder series is the spot metering functionality that it has. But before I get into that, this is uh, pretty much the penultimate 
60s, 70s vacation camera. So it was a camera, I think, that was made primarily for the advanced amateur um, consumer market. It's the one of the very first cameras with uh, programmed uh, auto exposure. So this camera does uh, goes into a full program mode that controls both shutter speed and aperture. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting camera. It's your typical rangefinder. I have a, a lovely example here. And these cameras, um, they're kind of hard to come by these days in really, really good condition. This one, I'm lucky to have have this, uh, this good one here. But um, uh, the camera itself, um, like I said, has a spot meter, has an external um, CDS uh, uh, photo cell on it uh, that never shuts off. So its off switch is its case, which is kind of inconvenient. Um, and I'm going to start... You know, I'm going to go with sort of the bad things about this camera first and end with the good things because the good things really outweigh the kind of bad slash inconvenient things about this camera. And one of the most inconvenient things is the one I just mentioned. You will burn out the uh, required mercury cell battery for this camera really, really quickly if you don't put it in its case or put a piece of black tape over the uh, CDS cell. There is no off switch for it, and so the meter will run continuously. And also, it probably has one of the coolest CDS cells ever. Yes. Because as you adjust the um, EI um, dial, you actually, there's actually an aperture yes. that opens and closes with about four blades. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really cool. Um, when you are shooting with this camera, you, um, the CDS cell is located just above the lens here. Um, so you actually have to make sure you don't put your finger in front of that thing. So, um, Or keep the lens cap on. Uh, yeah, that was going to be my next point about the inconveniences of this camera. Because the the, le- the metering is not TTL, um, y- you can't really tell if you have the lens uh uh, cap on or not until you super roll a film and wonder why the hell all the frames are blank um which i'm asking for a friend or telling someone else's story but uh yeah i once saw someone had a lens cap and on the uh the front of the lens cap mm-hmm. were the words tell me it's on <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's not, not a bad little accessory that is not such a bad idea and i think i'll do that with this lens cap for this camera because i have several images of the back of this lens cap. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so, um, that, that and for a, some reason, they're all underexposed. I don't that know. That could be a whole new genre of yeah. photography. You could get a Canal Council grant for that. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, the, how my 35 SP sees things, it sees nothing. Um, That's very so, metaphysical. <laughs> yeah. So, it is kind of inconvenient from that perspective. Also, from shooting the camera, it is not the most fun camera to shoot in manual mode. Um, for I don't, a couple things. One, the number one, the ASA or ISO adjustment is a total pain in the ass if you are far-sighted like I am. I can't see anything up close, so I need a bloody microscope to uh, read what's on that dial on the side of the camera. Um, so it basically it goes from uh, twenty-five to eight hundred ISO, which is you know pretty good given the Ant era. Camera, yeah, yeah, it's your aunt's camera. Um, and shutter speeds uh, are uh, um, a good question. Let me see here. I think it's uh, 500. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, it goes from one second to one five hundredth of a second. So it's not not bad. Not bad, given the era of the camera. It's got um, a Seiko-style uh, copal shutter. 
Um, like I said, it really sucks to shoot this camera in manual mode um, because uh, all the adjustments are done uh, with the two rings on the camera. So it has an aperture ring uh, and a guide number ring. Very um, Olympus. Yes, very Olympus. And it has a shutter speed ring. And um, so you can you can go into aperture priority by, you know, setting your aperture. Um, or you can set a guide number um, uh, on the camera as well, too. Which, which you mostly use for a flash. For a flash. So it does have a, a an accessory shoe. Um, it's a oh, hot no, shoe. this is an actual hot shoe. I do not see a PC... Oh, no, never mind. It's just an accessory shoe, um, and there's a PC port on the front of the camera. No, it has a contact for a hot shoe. Actually, yes, it does have the contact yeah. for a hot shoe. Yeah, interesting. And a PC port. Hmm. I'm resisting the urge to do an FPP sound clip here. <laughs> resist, 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 resist. The resist. <laughs> We're all hearing it. Might, in our heads. Mike will be upset if he if he, if he if we start his... doing sound effects and things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got a yeah, they, they've, they've got the market cornered on that. We're not going to. Yeah, infringe. I'll, I'll just challenge a shag groundskeeper. Well, do you want us to get sued? <laughs> um, uh, the uh, metering is all done in EV scale. So uh, there is a, it's a match needle, and it's an EV number match needle. So it's very similar to like metering with a Hasselblad. Or a um, Hymatic 7S. Yes, or Hymatic, yeah. I mean, it's basically a, like a Hymatic yeah. 7S. Um, so from that perspective, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a pain in the ass, quite frankly, to look at the guide number on the, or the uh, EV number on the top or the, in your viewfinder, look outside of the camera, see what EV you're on. Um, or just put the damn thing in uh, in automatic mode and rely on the ex- one of the sharpest, best quality lenses I've ever seen on a camera. Oh yeah, you this, you do not go wrong with those no. Zuiko lenses. Yeah, this uh, G Zuiko is uh, a fantastic piece of glass. Um, it is uh, soft in the corners like uh, a Sumalux. and it is sharp like a Sumacron. Um, yeah, and it is. Fractional cost of a, a you could buy ten of these and you won't have half a Leica lens. Oh yeah, you know, like it's uh, you know anyone wanting to get into uh, rangefinder film shooting um, and you don't want to blow your your brains out. Less than two hundred and fifty dollars, you've got a camera that. You know, pretty much rivals any Leica rangefinder yeah. in terms of optical quality. And like I said, this was one of the last solid yeah. fixed lens rangefinders yeah. that started really in the mid '60s, yeah. and Olympus basically perfected it yeah. because it has that center weighted with the option you push a button and you got a spot meter. Yeah, right there. Yep. So yeah, to use the spot meter, basically there's a button on the back. You hold down this. You well, you you know figure out where you want a spot meter. Yep. Put that in the center of the frame. Boom. Um, hold down your spot meter button. Keep it held down. It locks in the exposure and uh, keep it pressed and release your shutter. And um, Bob's your uncle. Yep. And um, I gotta say the 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 best thing about this camera is it's if if you just want to go out and shoot. Like you're you're doing some street photography or some you're on vacation uh, and you don't want you want to travel really really light. It's compact. It's compact. I mean, like you know, it, like look at this thing. It, it it's just well made. It's uh, it's real handy. It is like it's your aunt's camera. Mm-hmm. You know, and the optical quality is. I mean, it's one of those cameras where, like, you know, it's like Stephen King's t- uh, typewriter. Someone's going to see a photo from this and they're going to say, "You must have a really great camera." And I said, "Yeah, I got it at the same place Stephen King got his typewriter." 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, um, it, it's, uh, it's terrific. Uh, the focal length is interesting. It's 42 millimeters, which is, to me, kind of... It's, Gold, it's Goldilocks of a focal length. You know, it's, it's not a 35. It's not a 50. Yep. It's Goldilocks. Well, yep. it's the equivalent of like a 75 millimeter lens in medium format, yeah. six by six. It it kind of just works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I had, I have a, well, I got a dead Canonet at home with the same focal length, and yeah. I'd love to resuscitate that camera because that yeah. was a really fun. Well, they're yeah, they're they're fun, and there's so like they're you know, you know, other than kind of being inconvenient to shoot in in manual mode, other than that, I really have nothing bad to say about this camera. I really enjoy shooting it. It's great to like just throw in the glove box of your car yeah and leave it there um uh one thing that's kind of annoying is it takes an old mercury cell like px625 battery but you but know you what you shoot with a film that has enough latitude yeah. like the portrait like, 400 and there, and there are workarounds for that 625 and wow. you know like i'm not a big believer like i have a couple mr9 like adapters and stuff yeah. like that I just I just Whatever. buy the Varda cell, the one and a half volt alkaline battery. Yep. Like who cares? It's like point three volts or point two volts rather. Yeah. Um yeah, there's enough latitude in your film to not sweat over like not having one point three versus one point five. You know, I get it if you're a purist, maybe you wanna, you know, you take it to a, a qualified person to like put a resistor or something in there for you to but eh. <laughs> eh. my response to that is eh. Yeah. Eh. Why? Well, Save your money. Buy a roll of film. Yeah. Well, the 70s wasn't all SLR. Oh, wait, wait. I got to say one thing. Yeah? To make this the penultimate 70s camera is you got to turn the lights off and look at the psychedelic fluorescent paint that illuminates all the markings on the lens barrel. Really? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it glows. It's got like neon <laughs> pink and and lime and like chartreuse. Nice. It, it's very psychedelic. It's Austin Powers baby's camera. Oh, you know? Yeah. So anyway, well, the seventies also saw a start of the rise of a new style of camera, and that would be the point and shoot. And point and shoots have really been since before the seventies have been the um the box camera. But the seventies into the eighties, into the nineties, you saw the true point and shoot where everything was automatic. And again, this is a camera that is no stranger to the podcast. John has brought it up before, and that is the Minox thirty five. Not everyone needs a big camera. New. No. They realize that size doesn't matter. And so what I'm holding in That's my hand... That's not what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I'm the editor. Well, I'll probably leave it in anyway, just to prove my point. Um, I'm holding in my um, not small hands a uh, Minux EL, which... Hashtag sad. Which, which was introduced in 1974... Um, at the time, this was the smallest full-frame 35-millimeter camera that used regular cassettes. I think there's this thing called the Tessina, which is a subcompact TLR that uh, takes cassettes. I'd love to get one sometime. They're amazing little jewels of cameras. What is it called? A Tessina. 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 That is new to me. I think at TE, it's either 1S or 2. I thought the Rolly 35S was the smallest camera. I think this is smaller. 
I'm going to say that's smaller. I, I, let me go grab my Rolly. Interesting. Uh, and, We're going to compare camera bodies. And um, so it, it has some similarities to the Rolly. It has a 35 millimeter f 2.8 color Minotaur lens. If if it, you know your Greek mythology, that's maybe not the best name they could have used. This is a lens that is better than it should be for for one reason that optically, you want aperture blades that give you as close to a round circle as possible. This lens has four blades. So have a look, Bill. Look at oh the Tessina that's that um, Swiss one that exactly a, um, that you put on a watch band yeah what so, two S's well this is weird the opening in this lovely minotaur lens it's a hexagon it's like a pentagon well be- because it doesn't have enough aperture blades but from a an optical point of view uh, this thing produces absolutely amazing lenses. Now, it also, like the Roly, it is scale focus. It's a viewfinder camera, so you have to get good at estimating distances and learning how learning how hyperfocal distance works is a good thing with this camera. It's fine. The lens is so good. There are people online who will take the lenses from dead ELs, and unfortunately, there are a lot of those. I'll get to that in a second. Have, have taken the lenses and adapted them into like a thread mount so that you can use them in a scale focus mode. They're not going to uh, couple, of course, but you could use a scale focus. Um, the, the lens is that sharp. Now, I said that there are a lot of dead ELs, and now it's, it's time to talk about the, um, the Achilles heel, keeping with the Greek mythology thing. The Achilles heel on this camera is the shutter. It's elect- electromechanical. These shutters tend to die suddenly, and the general consensus in the repair community is they are not worth repairing. It is very difficult to repair. So uh, if, if you're going to buy one of these, uh, you're, you're running a risk. That, that's as simple as I can say it. And this is not something I would buy online. Don't buy them. Yeah. Or if you if you really want one, try and deal with someone who will, who has a return policy, local or ideally locally, so you can run a roll of film through it. Because yeah, a lot of these sadly are uh, are shelf queens. It's sad because it is a nice little camera. It is a clamshell. It folds up. It's very small, cute. Yeah, um, ISO twenty five to eight hundred. Um, it does take sort of. It, it is from the Mercury Cell era, and like my battery is dead now, but I have an XL EXELL S27PX6V Silver, which sort of works. You have to sort of give a bit more exposure, like juice up the ISO by a stop or so, but uh, it, it does work. So these days, the camera is sort of a, uh, I'd say it's an historical curiosity. There, there are lots of reasons not to buy one. It's a shame that the shutters are unreliable because like, it has uh, shutter speeds visible in the viewfinder. It's like an aperture priority. Um, it would be the 35mm lens and zone focus. It is a perfect little street shooter if the blankety-blank shutter worked. Yeah. This is perfect for Donald Trump. Oh. Your fingers need to be so tiny to work the knob. <laughs> Past the Kofifi. Oh, there'll be letters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <Yeah. laughs> 
I can't turn the knob. It's too small. Yeah, like the the thing is the what this camera, the I I think like Minox like before the thirty five millimeter, they were famous for their sub minis like the eight by eleven millimeters like the uh, the the Riga. They have a long and glorious history as legitimate spy cameras, and um, I think when they designed this thirty five, I think the overriding principle was we want this to be on record as the smallest full frame thirty five. I think everything else was secondary to that and so it does suffer in some respects from ergonomics although at least it has now I think it does have a hot shoe yep hot shoe and it is on top as opposed to the Rolly 35 that has it on the bottom and some things are better on top and I think the, the hot shoes can, is just, one of I'm those. I'm not even going to touch that one, John. That's, that's just too easy. <laughs> this is the last episode of the recording session. Sometimes it's uh, not always about the camera, but it's about how you carry your gear with you. And one thing that we often do not um, talk about is camera bags. And... As all of us around the table know, we have a lot of cameras, and sometimes we bring the right camera bag, and sometimes we bring the wrong camera bag. So, um, for the most part, um, camera bags can be split into really two categories. You've got the messenger bag style, and you've got the backpack style. And yeah, there's roller cases as well, but I don't think any of us have... Well, no, let me rephrase that. We all have that much gear that we need a roller case to bring every single camera body we own to an event or a trip, etc. But oftentimes, it's all about bringing the right bag for the gear you own. Um, and the one camera bag that James and I both have in common is the Peak Design Everyday Messenger. Now... When um, they first started producing these, it was a Kickstarter campaign. I I backed it because I personally, I really like messenger bag style. Um, it keeps me limited to the amount of gear I bring, um, the amount of film I bring to an event. And um, James recently picked up one. And the one thing that I found about the Everyday Messenger is that Back when I had an Intrepid 4x5, I could fit a 4x5 um, about four to eight holders and a couple of lenses and a tripod, and I could carry it in a messenger bag. It's an amazing bag, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Incredibly versatile and just, I mean... I just, just like literally got mine three days ago, mm. so uh, my wife got it for me for my birthday, um, and uh, well, she got me a gift certificate to the camera store, so I bought that. But that uh, works. Um, so I have, I have a pile of bags. I even I used to shoot weddings, so I I'm with a lot of gear. So I actually do have a great big suitcase roller, low pro roller bag that's not very convenient for like normal everyday use but um so i was kind of struggling like you know do i want to get a 
the backpack version or do I want the messenger bag version? I went with the messenger bag version because it well an excellent you, choice. Yeah, it you know it's a little bit more stylish. It's a little bit more sleek, um, and it's a little bit more I find convenient than kind of swinging the uh, the backpack around to access it. And Peak does Peak Designs does make a really lovely backpack uh, as well. They put a lot of thought yeah. into these bags that opens. Yeah, it opens from the top, the, the sides, zippers, yeah. the uh, magnetic clasp. Yeah, it's really, really good. The dividers are all adjustable. Yep. Um, this uh, messenger bag, uh, it has an additional like strap at the bottom that you can tie it around your waist. You can kind of turn it into a, a backpack if you want to. It's really designed um, for like cycling. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a bike messenger's bag basically. And for someone who and I does cycle a, a lot of cycling. Yeah, I I think it's great. Like especially you want to throw a small camera in there and mm-hmm. um you know. You, Go on a little mountain bike ride or small camera, big small, camera, yeah, whatever. I find yeah. I can fit my F5 in there. Yeah, they're not the cheapest bags around, but no. in terms of what a camera bag costs, they're right in Ball. line with everyone else. Like, I mean, you know, camera bags are not cheap. Um, the the construction of it is fantastic. Um, I really like it. I um, have been a long time user of uh, Think Tank uh, photo yeah. bags as well too, um, and they're geared like. Pretty much primarily, like they're styled, they're designed really just for photographic equipment. Um, but I find with the uh, the Peak Designs, yeah, it's primarily also for photo. But you can put other stuff in there. Like it's got a really nice pocket for your uh, your uh, 15 inch. And I bought the 15 inch version. It comes in a 13 inch version. So if you have a 13 inch laptop. Uh, or you want a smaller bag, yeah. whatever. You can put a 15-inch laptop in there, no problem. I throw my iPad in there. I um, can put my um, Microsoft Surface yeah. in there. Any one of, yeah, anything floor. like that, yeah. And, and it keeps it separate. It's nicely yeah. padded. Uh, you um, don't have to flip the actual flap open no, uh, to access nice it. Nice zipper. Yeah. You can flip the top all the way back for quick access to your yeah. gear. It comes with a pile of um, accessories as well, too. So you can buy clips to clip your body on the strap to just grab the camera body really quick. It has additional accessory straps that you can buy a matching strap for your camera that like holds on to the handle. Uh, I actually handle. have um, oh, there you a go. matching um, Peak Design strap yeah. that I basically have the holders on my XC7 and my F5. Yeah. And I Perfect. found another pair of anchors that I'm going to put on my... Yeah. Um, Mamiya M645. For me, I know it's going to make life a heck of a lot easier for photo walks and Mm. just, you know, um, and frankly, it's going to help me um, be a little bit more selective on what gear I'm going to bring to where I'm going. Because right now I'm, you know, I have way too many, too many cameras. So I kind of think I go through this stupid routine in my head where yeah. I'm like, well, what if I might need this camera or that camera? Pretty so, much the only lens that I cannot fit in that mm-hmm. and by cannot fit, I mean it's mounted on a camera is my, um, Nikon 7200 f2.8. Yeah, it, it probably it's probably not tall enough to no. hold that and a uh, uh, mount it on onto a body. No, but, but uh, again, it I has. You could the, lie it down though. It has the stepped yes um, um, latches on it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's just it's a great bag, and and the nice thing about this messenger bag, it's configurable for left-handed and right-handed use. Yep. So. And it will fit under your average airplane seat as well, yes. which is very similar to the um, messenger bag that um, Bill uses quite a bit. Yes, um, 
I'm a humongous fan of Domkey. Uh, they're owned by the same people who own Tiffin. It's an American-made bag. If you see them, in uh, Downtown Camera in Toronto carries them, also B&H in New York. They're made of sort of like a real heavy-duty canvas available in sort of black, olive green. I've got the olive green one at home. I've had it for over 10 years. It's aged quite nicely. It's been to New York a few times, been hiking. It's been into Toronto more times than now I can count. Uh, what I love about the this particular side, the little bit smaller, uh, you can fit in a small SLR kit, like say an Olympus OM-1, three lenses, or a Pentax MX, three lenses, or an Nikon FM, FM2, FE, FE2, and a couple lenses, or the X, Minolta XT11. You probably won't want to go anything heavier than that, or you'll like regret it later on and then you can also throw in a uh, a rollycore tlr and you've got yourself a two format kit you can travel just about anywhere with it'll fit under most airline seats uh, including bombardier and bearer and airbus and boeing uh you've got a lovely front pocket where you can throw in a ton of film and you got a little pocket on the lid you can throw in batteries, filters. I really like the uh, the look of it, like the like old heavy canvas yeah. kind of uh, it's, uh, look. It's sort of my go-to bag for sort of urban excursions. Like if I was traveling to New York City, this is the bag I would take mm-hmm. with me. If it's a, uh, a photo walk I'm doing either in Cambridge, Toronto, wherever, this is the bag I take with me. Now, if I'm doing a trip up in, say, northern Muskoka and I'm hiking in the woods, I use like a Lopro or a Dakane uh, camera backpack because uh, then I can take two SLR bodies, a whole comp- uh, complement of lenses plus a TLR and, of course, film, filters and all that fun stuff. And I can throw it on my back, but it's also built like a technical backpack so the weight's evenly distributed. And you can, of course, add on a clip that you can okay, you can bring your tripod with you and along with a water bottle so you don't dehydrate. Again, it, the weight does add up. You're looking at about 35 pounds. But again, if you're in decent shape, yeah, you can do an 8 to 10 kilometer hike with, you, with it and you're fine. I also have a, a low pro sling bag that I do for lighter day hikes. So if I don't feel like traveling heavy or I, I use it to go skiing, although I do have an issue with the odd lift operator or two with a chairlift. They don't like the idea of it, but again, the thing was designed to go skiing originally, but hey, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> but again, it's like, do your research on where... The thing with camera bags, it's one thing to store gear, but it's also, where are you going with that gear? How are you getting there? Uh, what you're shooting with, and it's like you got to get in, you also got to get out. Now, um, some of us around the table are not as young as we used to be, and I'm really sorry, John, but you are the oldest of our group. Our so, if I were a camera, I'd be an expensive collector item. <laughs> You'd be a shelf queen. <laughs> we'll Again, have words later. <laughs> so what do you bring on a photo walk, John? Uh, yeah, I hate camera bags. They're... So is, are cameras like a drag for you? Oh, oh dear. No, sometimes, James, you can be very funny, and then there's now. Um, I have, I think I must have half a dozen camera bags. None of them are really name brand. Um, the biggest I have, actually, it's in the room now. I've got a backpack, which holds a lot of gear and is actually not bad for the Hasselblad kit because it's I find stuff that just hangs on the shoulder hurts my back and I have back problems what I like to do when I can is uh, I like 
camera bags are basically double as clothing. I have a uh, a windbreaker. I, uh, of course, it's not really windbreaker season right now. It's if it's in December, it's too cold in Toronto for a windbreaker, and of course in the summer it's too hot. But when it's appropriate, I have a windbreaker that has a really large pocket, like we're talking huge inside pocket. And if I'm going out with, let's say, my Voigtlander Bessa kit, I can have you know two extra lenses and a lot of film um, and filters, etc., just in my pockets on that jacket, and I'm um, unrestrained from carrying a, a bag. And that's I, I like as a, again, maybe I just haven't found the right camera bag. I need to maybe invest in something that's a bit higher end. But uh, and I just try I I try and carry lighter or go lighter than I used to. I remember some of the uh, the photo walk, the Toronto uh, film shooters walks from, let's say, two or three years ago. I'd, I'd be there with a four or five cameras uh, and, and some heavy gear. Now, like, typically, I'll take out one medium format. Uh, or I might go, let's say, all Nikon, or I'll take medium format, and then I'll throw the Bessa R2M in because it's so light. It's, uh, it's cheap insurance. And I try and keep the bag as uh, as empty as possible. Otherwise, my back will complain. So yeah, that's me. Me and camera bags, not a match made in heaven. Well, probably the oldest camera bag I own is um, a Click Elite. Now, this is a brand that I think has pretty much faded into obscurity. By now, I don't see much from them anytime new, but it's. It was my first purchase from B&H, and the only camera backpack that I've really melded with quite well, I bought it just before my first trip to New York, which yielded me a trip to uh, B&H. What I really like is that it can be brought as carry-on luggage. It can fit under a um, Bombardier QT400, which Porter uses in their fleet. And I can put a 4x5 in it. I can pretty much only put a 4x5 in it, but it means that I don't have to bring out the massive low-pro backpack that I have. Um, almost infinite configure, um, configurations. It has the Velcro um, thing, so if I want to bring a medium format, I can put in a medium format configuration, 35mm, 35mm, 4x5, 4x5, but that's about it. You can pretty much go with a complete kit in one format or half and half, but nothing all three. But then again, why are you bringing three cameras on a on an individual photo walk? If I'm going on vacation and I'm bringing three formats, four if um, I have the digital on me, um, what am I doing? <laughs> so... Um, but again, Click Elite's one of those obscure ones that have, again, faded into obscurity, but definitely worth uh, looking at. Um, they have a great um, clip system. Again, they have a bit of a tactical quality to them that you can buy um, a chest pouch to put your SLR in. You've got the backpack as well with your extra lenses. But again, these days I'm looking at messenger bags where I can bring a single camera system, three or four lenses, and a whole lot of film with me. Because in the end, 
I want more media with me to capture my trips or my photo walks and oh, I'm halfway through, I need to swap, right? And end up almost done the event without capturing that last little bit because I've run out of out of media. So good, good rule of thumb, take half the gear and twice the film. Absolutely. That wraps it up for season four of Classic Camera Revival. My name is Alex Lokesen saying Happy New Year and we will be back for season five, bigger and better than ever. Mm-hmm. I'm Bill Smith, again wishing everyone all the best for the holiday season and see you again in 2019. This is James Lee. Uh, all the best of this uh, holiday season. I hope um, uh, whoever's in your life gets you something really, really nice uh, that's camera and film related. And remember, um, next to a tiny camera, your fingers look bigger. This is John Meadows. In the 1970s, we had platform shoes, polyester shirts, and film photography. I'm glad film photography is the one that survived into 2018, and it will survive into 2019. New films, great cameras, a lot of film photography podcasts. Things are looking good. Have a great holiday season, and we'll talk to you next year.